you ever wonder how some of the greatest people today become who they are? Most everyone has experienced that turning point in their life. It's these moments that forever changed who they were into whom they become. Today on The Moment with Chris Epting, you'll hear from these people and hopefully be inspired to find your own life-changing moment. Now, here is your host, Chris Epting. Thank you for joining me today here on The Moment. I'm holding a new book in my hands. It's called Son of a Milkman. Son of a Milkman. It's a memoir. But the subtitle is My Crazy Life with Tesla. And it's by Brian Wheat, one of the founding members of that great Sacramento-based band, Tesla. And I have a, a slight personal connection to this is that I co-wrote the book with Brian. So I am really excited to have uh, Brian Wheat here today. Brian, you're there, right? Yay, Chris. What's up, buddy? There he is. <laughs> I'm in California. Brian is in upstate New York where it's snowing. And uh, we're, we're joining. We'll be together next week, actually, in Sacramento. We'll talk about that later today. But hey, first up, man, congratulations on the book. I know we worked on it together, but it's your life. It's your book. And I hope you're really excited about how it turned out. I'm, I'm thrilled with it. I think from the, from the cover to what's inside to the back cover, it's an amazing package. So what did you think when you first opened that box and saw that you had become an author? I was like, "Wow, man! This is <laughs> this is this is real. It's tangible. I'm holding it in my hands." It's you know, I think when people write their memoir, there's definitely you know, you're sticking your neck out. You've put a lot of things in your book that are personal and uh, things you haven't shared before, along with a lot of great rock and roll stories, which we'll get to. But were you nervous at all? Like, it's one thing when you're working on it, but when you, when you get it and see that it's real and understand that anybody now around the world can be holding it in their hands, does that concern you at all? Or are you totally yeah, comfortable? It, it, no, it does concern me a little bit. You know, I think the thing that concerns me more than anything is just, you know, I don't want to piss off anyone in my band. Right. And, you know, and some of this thing. I, I mean, I didn't do the dirt on really anybody. I was just factual about a few things. And you But, know, but I, you bring up a point. But that's an important point because you're the first guy in the band to write a memoir. Yeah. I mean, every, they, they can all do it, obviously, and you'll all have your own perspective on what it was like, but, but that's got to be kind of weird to know that, yeah, you're the first guy going out. So you've got to be, and I know when we were working on it, you were very conscious about, okay, what would Frank think about this? And you would reach out to those guys. I actually thought you were really cool about how you ran stuff by those guys and sort of made sure they were cool with it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's one story about me and Frank and I was going to omit it from the book. And I, I called him and I said, you know, look, he goes, no, I'll leave it in. It happened. You yeah, I, I think that's a great attitude. Um, and that was cool. But, you know, I mean, the funny thing is, is, you know, I was telling stories of things that, you know, were happening 30 years, years ago. And the one thing that I think that I want everyone to kind of realize is that we've grown as a band and as people and, and we're not the same guys we were 30 years ago. So I may be telling a story of something me and Jeff may have done or got into something 30 years ago, but that's not how we feel today. Right. And, right. and you know, that's the main thing. It's just, you know, it's just like a little snippet, but I think it's all right, but it, it does make me a little nervous, you know, because uh, those guys are my brothers and, you know, I, I wouldn't want to think I'm, I was doing, you know, anything in, in bad interest of them. 
And you're still very much a band. It isn't like you're not going to be back on the road when things settle down, right? It's like you guys are a very yeah, hard it's not working like band. Breaks up and you don't care because you're never going to see each other. Again. Right. You know, we still are a working band, and we still, you know, we still see each other six months out of the year when we're working. Yeah, I mean and, that's you know, the thing, and, and it's it's got. Well, what's it been like, Brian? It's, going off the book for a second. I mean, it's got to be strange. You guys, like a lot of other bands, had some big tours planned this past summer and into the fall and stuff. Now you kind of just regroup and hunker down and wait till next year. Um, are you hearing anything? I mean, does, does management, do they, obviously they don't know anything that hasn't been publicized yet, but you think we're looking at kind of a summer to fall thing as it stands right now, as far as seeing Tesla back on the you road? Know, I, don't, I don't know. I can't even tell you that because they don't fucking know. Yeah, they don't know. They they don't like. Well, we don't know, man. Uh, hopefully, you know. I know we got some things on the books for May right. and June, but whether or not those will go through, we had the thing. We had things on the book for, you know, this summer. Yeah, you know, they just start going away, going away, and you know, I mean, who knows with what's going on, you know, today and. I mean, fuck, we don't even know who the president is yet. I mean, <laughs> you know, and no, what, no. you know, you got where you subscribe to, you know, does the country really need to be locked down or does it not? And, you know, this, that, and the other, it's pretty crazy. It's, you know, it's, it's funny because I talk about in my book, you know, as you know, depression and stuff and the uncertainty is very fucking depressing. Well, you bring that up. Uh, your, your good friend, Joe Elliott, of course, the lead singer of Def Leppard, he wrote a, a really beautiful foreword for the book. On the back of the book, though, there's a quote from Joe. I'm going to read it really quickly. It says, Brian has written an open and very honest book that I think you will thoroughly enjoy. I'm proud of how he has dealt with a lot of things he struggles with, but I'm equally proud of the great music he and his band have made over the years. He's referring to what you just said. You, you, you come very clean in your book, Son of a Milkman, about depression, about general anxiety disorders, and about how, despite the fact that people might have a perception about the life of a rock star, what you're going through are things that are very human, very relatable, and things that you don't hear a lot of musicians talk about. What was it like for you to, to, to sort of unpack and share those things in a book, Brian, for fans, that, especially to follow the band for so long, that might not know about what you've been going through in your life? Um, well, I think I talk about how, you know, my therapist encouraged me to one day you know, write a book to let things go. Almost like therapy in itself, right? I, yeah. It's funny. I therapy. thought of that when we were working on the book that yeah, you said that and it's like, wow, we're actually helping you by writing this book. Right. So I think just telling people, you know, like, like one of the things that, you know, is, is, is hard is, um, you know, I do look at shit on the internet, what people say and all that stuff. And, you know, my manager tells me you shouldn't and this, that, and the other, but you do, you can't help it. It's human nature. right? Sure. And someone will say, Oh, he looks really fat. He's bloated. But what they don't know is I just came off a course of fucking prednisone for my autoimmune disease. Right. And so, you know, I talk about that. Well, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I am fat and bloated right now because it's not because I don't care or because I've been eating, you know, 16 boxes of uh, Krispy Kreme donuts. It's because I just got off, you know, uh, a, a course of prednisone and I'd been shitting blood for three weeks, 
you know, and, and hunched over and this medicine does that to you. So it's like, it's like a trade-off. So you kind of letting people know, Hey, maybe there's a reason for this and, Maybe you might want to be a little cooler when you judge me. I think that's actually a really powerful theme in your book. And it's one of the things that first drew me to it when you and I first started talking a couple of years ago is the fact that because of what happens on social media today, the kind of shaming and anonymous attacks and things that to have somebody as high profile as you, A, admit that like everyone else, you read stuff and it affects you. And B, you know, sometimes you've got to take a minute and think about what maybe that person is going through and not to just react to a photo, which a lot of people do. And and I think that's what's going to, you know, people that may not even be big music fans necessarily, to me, that's the kind of storytelling that, that people relate to because we all know people, might be ourselves, that go through that, those kinds of attacks and things. And so for you, again, you're in the rock and roll bubble. There's not supposed to be anything like that in there. No, yet. I'm supposed to be, you know, happy all the time, right. rich, not have any you know, anxiety or stress or go through anything that the normal person goes through. I'm exempt of all that. And that's, that's the perception. And, and again, by, I yeah. think by when you demystify it in your book, your new memoir, yeah, I think it really helps people because a, you, you begin to realize that everyone's just a human being at the end of the day, we're all kind of the same, you know, um, well, and we, we all go through things. We just do different things. Right. It just so happens that, I get up and sing, you know, signs and love song. And that's how I earn my living. You know, the pilot for, you know, American Airlines flies, you know, 747. Right. That's what he does for his living. You know what I mean? It's just, you know, but when you're an entertainer and you're in the public spotlight, uh, you know, people, they judge you and shame you and, you know, whatever they want, especially with the internet, they can say whatever the hell they want. You know, in the old days, you didn't see it unless you saw it in the paper and the magazine. But now it's like, you know, some kid in Tupelo, Mississippi can, you know, say anything he wants about me. Right. Brian and Wheat and I are talking about his new memoir, Son of a Milkman, uh, from Post Hill Press. It actually comes out in a couple of weeks, in the second week of December. My Crazy Life with Tesla is the uh, the subtitle, and uh, Joe Elliott wrote the foreword. Talk a little bit about how Tesla forms in Sacramento, because I think there's a great kind of almost a little book within the book about how this band comes together. It's an interesting time in rock and roll. It's the early 80s. I mean, things are changing a lot. A lot of hair metal is going on. You know, that's sort of the movement of the time. But what's the birth of Tesla like for you, Brian, up in Sacramento? Well, it started with me and Frank. You know, I met Frank when he was uh, uh, 14 and I was 17 or 18. And we met and we started playing together. And we had a couple of, you know, little bands that basically turned into Tesla. You know, because you guys course. weren't called Tesla. I mean, even even the name came from an outside source, right? I mean, you would all yeah, even yeah, after no, you signed no. a record deal, you didn't sign it as Tesla. No, we were called City Kid, right? Uh, when we uh, uh, first started, how does it become Tesla from City Kid? Um, so when we went in to do the record, we were called City Kid. And they said to us from the jump, you know, look, you're going to have to change your name because the music doesn't sound like um, a name like City Kid. Because prior to that, 
you know, we, we had a sound similar to like a lover boy kind of thing. It wasn't as rock. Right. And when we met Ronnie Montrose and he produced one of our first sets of demos, he said to us, he said, there's two ways you can go. You can go down, you can be a band like Loverboy or you can be a band like Def Leppard. You know, you got two kind of styles. We got to kind of stick to one. And we chose the Def Leppard one. Mm -hmm. And which is what, you know, became Tesla. And, you know, obviously Humble Pie and Bad Company and all those other, you know, Skinner and Zeppelin and all that. But at the time, you I mean, you remember in the 80s, you know, when Loverboy came out, there was all that minute work and all that stuff. So right. we were kind of doing that because that's how you got in the clubs, by playing the top 40 hits, you know. Um, so that name fit that band, but it didn't fit what became Tesla and the music. So, you know, we were in the studio and making the first album, and they said, you know, look, you got till the end of this recording to come up with a name and every night we'd sit there and try to come up with a name and we couldn't come up with anything. And, you know, one that one day we were in the studio and Chrissy Hine was in the studio as well. <laughs> and the other studio, there was two big studios there at Bearsville. And, you know, we, we'd say hello to her or whatever at the breakfast table, you know, they had bagels and coffee and tea and whatever. <laughs> and we were telling her kind of, you know, and she said, well, come in my studio come in the control room and I'll try to help you. And so me and Jeff spent an hour with her one day in her control room and she was trying to help us come up with, you know, name for the band and stuff. And she had some pretty funny names. You remember any of her ideas? I think one was dogs balls or some (laughs) shit. You know what I mean? (laughs) She was pretty wide open. She, I think she's great. I I love her. Who doesn't? I mean, Uh, and uh, so we finished the recording and we were having a, a barbecue at our producer, Michael Barbiero's house to you know celebrate the finishing the recording. And our manager, Cliff Bernstein, came to the, uh, to the barbecue. And he's the one that said, you know, hey, I got this idea for a name for the band. And, you know, it's, it's Tesla. And we was like, what the fuck's that? You know? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and uh, um, you know, then they, you know, he told us about Tesla and who he was and, you know, what he stood for and, you know, how there was maybe speculation that the government had him off and this, that, and the other and, kind of like a, a rebel, you know, like rock uh-huh. and roll. We kind of identified with it on that terms, you know, like being a, a rebel, you know. And uh, then later we got educated about who he was and all that stuff. And our drummer, Troy, he can tell you everything you want to know about the inventor Tesla. I, you know, I'm not so well versed on it. You know, I mean, I know what he did and stuff, but, you know, Troy could write a book about it. And who knew who knew back in the mid 1980s that that name would come back in culture? It would be like if you named your band Ford or Chevrolet, right? In the 1920s. Yeah, you know, it's funny. Uh, you know, some people don't even know the band, and the band's been around for 35 years, but they know the car. And we don't really have any affiliation with the car company in, in Elon. 
Yeah, but is he familiar with the band? Is Musk familiar with Tesla? The band? Well, you know, I reached out to him a couple times. And, you know, I saw a picture at him of him at the Sundance Music Festival wearing one of our T-shirts, <laughs> a big T-shirt. So I thought, well, great, you know. So I reached out to his executive assistant and, you know, he sent us a bunch of Tesla T-shirts and we sent him a bunch <laughs> of, you know, Tesla car T-shirts. We sent him Tesla band T-shirts and, you know, invited him to a show a couple, two or three times and he never was able to come and he uh, invited us to the plant to come and see the cars and we never wound up going. So one day I hope we'll meet. Well, we should definitely get him a copy of the book, you know, and stay on him. Um, maybe he'll send us Teslas, you know, just to say thanks <laughs> for the thought of the book. Yeah. Um, I'm yeah. talking to Brian Weed about this new, brand new memoir, Son of a Milkman, My Crazy Life with Tesla. I'm going to take a quick break here. Uh, we're going to come back and talk a little bit about some of the incredible relationships Brian has formed over the years with a variety of, of music, musicians and musical heroes and things as a result of being one of the founding members of Tesla. I'm Chris Epting. This is The Moment. We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Chris Epting will be releasing the third edition of his best-selling baseball travel Bible, Roadside Baseball, in June 2019. Academy Award-nominated director Ken Burns said about Roadside Baseball, What a wonderful book. All the stations of the cross of our national pastime are here, big and small, telling and frivolous. I can imagine this book in the glove compartment of every true fan's car. A handy reference to this beloved game, no matter where in the country you are. The new edition features hundreds of new places to discover, more rare photos, stories, and trivia. It's everything you need to plan the baseball road trip of your dreams. Roadside Baseball, coming this June. Available for pre-order right now on Amazon.com. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. You are listening to The Moment with Chris Epting. If you have a question or comment about our show, please send an email to Chris at chrisepting.com. That's chris at chrisepting.com. Now, back to The Moment. Talking right now with my friend and co-author, Brian Wheat, who wrote a book called Son of a Milkman, a brand new memoir, Son of a Milkman, My Crazy Life with Tesla, which of course talks a lot about Brian being a co-founder of the super popular band Tesla. Brian, one of the things that really jumped out at me when you and I started working on your book, which is available in just a couple of weeks on Amazon and wherever uh, fine books are sold, uh, one of the things that jumped out at me were some of the relationships and and just sort of run-ins that you had. Now, for those that don't know, you're not just a big Beatle fan. You're, you're a McCartney guy, right? That's somebody that you've really kind of idolized musically for a long time since you were a kid right yeah he's, he's the reason i got into the whole thing 
even the cover of the book, you know, you're, you're hugging your Hofner bass, which is kind of a tribute right there to, uh, to McCartney. And one of my favorite moments in the book was on Tesla's first trip to England, where you're going to play some shows and sort of do your thing over there. And you have this crazy moment where you actually meet Paul McCartney for the first time, right? Yeah. Yeah. What happens that night? Well, I was actually, me and Frank were doing press at, at Geffen in London, which happened to be like across the street or around the corner from where Paul McCartney's office was, MPL, his, you know, his headquarters in London. And me and Frank were walking through Soho Park and I went, oh shit, there's, there's, there's Paul McCartney's building because you see it on MPL. And I looked up on the third floor and it's him looking out the fucking window. <laughs> and so I, you know, I waved and he waved and, and shit. And I kind of motioned, Hey, come on down. And he got, gave me like, you know, 10 minutes or whatever, you know, like, you know, can't hear each other, you know, and he came down and, and, and he was leaving for the day. And, and, uh, you know, we spoke for a few minutes and there was some other, you know, fans and stuff. And he was really fucking cool. And he stopped and took pictures and talked with people for, you know, five, 10 minutes. But I spoke to him for about, you know, two or three minutes and told him I was over there. Uh, I have a new band on Geffen and I was playing the marquee club and he said, well, good luck. You know, a lot of people, that's where they get their start, man. So uh, it was cool. And you got a picture. I, my favorite picture in the book is that day on the, the cold streets of London, of, of you and Paul McCartney. I mean, there you are, right as you're starting out. It's an amazing shot. Yeah, it was pretty fucking cool, man. You know, kind of interesting because this is not that long after, you know, John Lennon was assassinated in New York. It seems odd that, that McCartney would have been in the mid-80s like that accessible, that A, you could make eye contact, and then he would I mean, come out front. I mean, he, he didn't really have security. He had that guy he always had with him. Um, what's his name? Richard something, you know, mm -hmm. at the time. It was like his roadie. And, you know, but I'll tell you, people are a lot cooler in England. You know, like, I'm also very, real good friends with Jimmy Page from Led Zeppelin. Which we're going to get to in a minute. That's right. another and, one. That... And I, but this, we'll get to that. But the point I'm going to make is that, I go all over London with Jimmy and it's just me, Jimmy and Ross and no security, no nothing. Ross health and the photographer. Yeah. And the people don't mess with him. You know, they might say, Hey Jimmy, you know, uh, you know, can I have a picture or whatever? He might say, you know, not right now, whatever. And, um, where, when he comes to America, he has to have three or four security guys. With him. So, you know, I think McCartney, I think the mindset of the people in England is that it's, it's just Paul, you know what I mean? Yeah. They're kind of used to it and they don't flip out. He's a local. Right. And that's what they do with Jimmy. You know, they'll see him in a record shop and they'll say, Hey Jimmy, and he'll say, Hey, and you know, that's it. They don't really wear in America. If I took Jimmy Page to Amoeba, <laughs> people would be all over him and get yeah. attacked. You know what I mean? So, I think at that time, you know, that was McCartney's mindset. I mean, you know, and the cool thing is he don't do pictures anymore. He'll tell you, I'll shake your hand. I'll talk to you. I don't take pictures with people anymore. 
But at that time, he was. So, you know, I feel pretty lucky to have my picture with Paul McCartney. Well, since you brought up Jimmy Page, I mean, look, like a lot of us in the early 70s, you grew up a Zeppelin freak um, through your association with the great photographer, Ross Halfin, who also wrote an afterword in your book and contributed some really wonderful photos, including the cover. Through your, your friendship with Ross, you get to know Jimmy Page. What's that like for you, Brian, to have grown up a kid that, that adored Zeppelin and now you and Page are going shopping for vinyl. You're hanging out. You're having dinner together. It's a, it's a great subtext in your book, this relationship that you value. You're pretty private about out of respect for Jimmy, but what, what's it like just for you as a fan to get to know Jimmy on the level that you have? It's pretty fucking cool. I mean, when I was a kid, you know, I had posters of Wings and the Beatles and Jimmy Page on my wall. And, you know, look, me and Paul McCartney aren't friends. He don't know me from Adam. You know what I mean? Me and Jimmy are, are actually good friends, you know, speaking to each other on the the phone to go to his house, you know what I mean? I've been in his house. Uh, you know, we're, we're good, good friends. Um, that is kind of like, it blows my mind. And, you know, it's funny. I, you know, normally to me, he's just Jimmy, right? Me and Monique will go out with him or whatever and start pal Jimmy, you know, whatever, go to dinner. But, a couple years ago, I went and played this thing that they were doing in Seattle for him, uh, Paul Allen from Microsoft. Right. He did this this thing where, you know, all these people honored Jimmy Page. There was all these musicians. And I was invited to go play as well. And I played with Paul Rogers. We did the, the firm stuff. And Jimmy didn't know I was going to be there, you know. And, you know, lo and behold, you know, he's in the front row and they announced me and I come out and he had this big old grin on his face and, you know, I'm like, hey. And um, so it was never planned that Jimmy was going to get up and play. As a matter of fact, it was highly doubted that he was going to get up and play. But he decided, because he, I think he was so happy with all the people that were paying tribute to him, you know, um, that he got up and he jammed. Well, he stood right next to me, you know, because we're pals. And at that moment, I went, holy fuck, I'm playing with Jimmy fucking Page. <laughs> you know, um, at that moment, it was like, well, that's Jimmy Page. But over the years, knowing him for as long as I have and, and, and hanging out with him and stuff, He's just my pal, Jimmy. You know what I mean? I, I forget sometimes that he's Jimmy Page from Led Zeppelin. You know? It's, that's, no, it's, it's amazing. No, it's amazing, again, to have that kind of relationship when you grow up, you know, idolizing I mean, a player like, like that. You hanging out, you know? If we go out for coffee, it's like, all right, me and Jimmy for coffee. Yeah. You know? And in the back of my mind, I always know that he's Jimmy Page, but I don't treat him like that. And I think that's maybe what he likes about me is that I don't, become fanboy on them or anything. We just, we talk like two guys who are peers that both play in bands or both musicians. And, uh, you know, well, I, you, I know, you, I know when you met him, he was familiar with Tesla because you guys were on the same label and he knew, of yeah. course, yeah, the he first knew the five-man acoustical jam. I met him in, in Hammersmith Odeon at a David Lee Ross show. I was with Ross. 
And Ross is like, you know, his brother. They're like brothers. Uh, Ross, so we're going to go out tonight and, uh, you know, we're going to see Jimmy. So control yourself. Don't fucking <laughs> act, act like a puncher. I went, okay, <laughs> I can do that. So I met him and, you know, I said, hi. And he said, hi, hi, Brian. I said, hi, Jimmy, how are you doing? And, and uh, I said, would you like something to drink? And he said, yeah. And so I went to the bar and got us both, you know, something to drink at the time. <clears throat> and uh, and then he just said to me, he said, hey, man, I really, I really like five-man acoustic jam. And I went, what? He went, yeah, five-man acoustic jam. I really like it. And I went, I didn't even think you knew who the fuck I was. He went, yeah, I know who you are. We're on the, we're on the same label, <laughs> you know? And, uh, and that's how we started our, our friendship. So I was blown away. That, that to me, meeting Paul McCartney is great because you meet your, your hero, your idol, and you're not let down. But really, my friendship with Jimmy Page, I think it's one of the most special things that I got as a result of being in Tesla and, and what it's afforded me the opportunities to do was, you know, become a really good friend with one of my heroes. And, you know, every time I see him, he's inspiring to me. You know, he, he encouraged me to write a book. When I told him I was writing the book, he said, you should do it. You know what I mean? He was very encouraging to me. He's that kind of a guy. You mentioned he, he sparked to five-man acoustic jam and uh, hear your dog in the background. For those that don't know, Brian is a, is, and his wife are dog people, uh, right? And so I have no problem. Jack Russells. <laughs> no problem. Here. Louise. The, the Jack Russells are well represented in the book as well. And if you love dogs, I think you'll love Brian's story as well because he is a true dog person. Brian, you mentioned that Jimmy was familiar with five-man acoustic jam. We've got basically a whole chapter in the book that, that gets into how that changed Tesla because it wasn't expected. You guys did not set out to um, create this acoustic set that really helped define the band for a new audience. How does that come about? Um, that all of a sudden you go from being an arena rock and roll band to almost ushering in the whole era of, of the unplugged set. Well, you know, it's funny. People want to blame us for it. And, you know, I can't really take the credit for it. I mean, really, I'm, I'm going to give it to Jimmy and go back to Led Zeppelin three, which was kind of an acoustic album, wasn't it? Um, but like he said to me, so you were the first ones to do an all live acoustic album, you know, and that we were, we were the first ones to do an all live acoustic album. So, um, you know, but it wasn't like you guys set out to do it. It came about almost by accident, didn't it? Well, it was. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Which is interesting because, I mean, tell, tell a little bit of the story because, again, I, I like the fact that it was very serendipitous, that it was something that you guys had played a little show up in San Francisco, right? Yeah. So what happened was we had won an award called a BAMI Award, Bay Area Music Award. And, you know, there's all these bands from San Francisco, like the Doobies and all those people and that old Bill Graham scene and Eddie Money and Journey right. You know, Y&T and all these people that were Metallica. So they had this, their own like kind of award, yearly award thing. And we had won best rock album for five men. Uh, no, uh, great radio controversy. So 
something happened to where our gear was on the truck or, or something. They wanted us to play. And we didn't have our gear. It was, you know, in route. We were coming off a tour or something. So we said, well, we'll just play a love song all on acoustics, you know, acoustic bass and snare drum and, you know, kind of like Stray Cats or whatever, right? Right. I think that's what we were thinking. So we did that. We played Love Song and, you know, people thought it was great and we got our award and got the fuck out of there. Well, about a month later, our manager, Peter Mitch, calls us up and he says, look, I got this letter from this woman that, that runs Boss Skaggs Club in San Francisco, Slims. Went, yeah. She wants to know if you guys would entertain playing a, an hour and a half all acoustic show. And we said, fuck no. We don't want to do that. <laughs> That's not rock and roll. And he went, okay, well, you guys probably aren't good enough to pull it off anyways. Well, that's the wrong thing he wanted to say to us. So we said, no, we'll do it. We'll show you. So then we put together what was the five-man acoustic jam. You know, what you hear on the record was our repertoire, right? And so how it came about was we were going on tour with Motley Crue on the Dr. Feelgood tour. Right. And they were only playing like three days a week. Right. And us being a young band, we couldn't afford to do that. We had to fill in some days. Right. Because we needed to play like five days a week. So what Peter and Cliff did was they booked five or six of these, um, acoustic shows you know one in two in san francisco one in london uh, new york boston detroit philadelphia i don't think we did a chicago one back in the, the, the original string of dates and you know um on one of them the philadelphia one peter and me i said you know we should record this and film this one day just for archives you know look back on not thinking that the band would ever make it 40 years or whatever, just thinking, well, that's what you do, right? When you do something kind of that's different and cool. So, you know, I think it costs us 15 grand to just, you know, record the show and film it real. And it just was going to sit there. It was never meant to be a record. It wasn't meant to be anything just, you know, to have B roll or whatever. And so long story short, what happened was, while we were in Boston with Motley, the guys, uh, Frank and, and Jeff and Tommy, went to uh, WAAF, the radio station there, to promote the show. You know, we were doing Motley Crue, and they took a couple of acoustic guitars with them, and they sang this version of Signs, right? Just the two of them and Jeff, which... You know, it was always, you know, at that time, everyone wanted you to show up with an acoustic and play a song, right? Right. So they recorded that, you know, the radio station, just like we're recording our interview here right now. And um, they started playing that. Well, all of a sudden, they started getting all these requests for it in Boston. 
you know, really organic. It started to take off. So then they called our managers and the record company and said, look, you know, this thing's going on in Boston. Do you have a version of this song? And they said, well, as a matter of fact, we do. We have this acoustic thing that we did in, in Philadelphia. So I said, well, okay, why don't you mix that up and maybe we'll put out a little EP or something. So, so we, so we did, so we did concert and then the album and it became five man acoustic jam and that's it. That's, that's how it went. The fact that you didn't set out to do that, I think, is fascinating. And again, it, it it really ushers in this new age of acoustic music, especially on MTV. A lot of bands follow suit. It's something you guys work into your your live sets, and, and you still do. And it's, uh, you know, Bob Left Sets, the uh, famed music insider whose uh, newsletter is so well read. He, he called that as, I think he said something like it was the greatest live album ever. Like and he mentioned, get your yeah, yes out by the Rolling Stones. I mean, you know, it got a lot of attention and you even have Jimmy Page, you know, acknowledging it as well. So it, you know, f- however yeah, I it think, happened. I think more, people, more people definitely know us from the five man acoustic yeah. jam than and anything else. And I think if Tesla's ever even considered for, you know, the rock and roll hall of fame or stuff, it'll be on the back of the five man acoustic jam because it was different. It was something yeah. different. And you it know, changed, right? And it changed it was, the course. It changed a lot in terms of right. the landscape and at that people point. People this day, they, they, you know, they still say, "Well, you were kind of the first ones," but uh, you know, we weren't the first ones to play acoustic. There were people doing it. I mean, the sure, but, you, but you're the first ones, that. I think, to deal with in a live album setting like that with that kind of cover tune. Yeah, and, and that, that's absolutely, absolutely true. Brian, we're going to come back in a minute. Right. Well, Clapton, yeah, a lot of bands did it since. We're going to be back in a minute. Brian, when we come back, I want to talk about another musical relationship you guys as a band had that has always been really special and it resulted in the forward of your book, which we'll get to in a minute. I'm Chris Epting. My special guest today is Brian Wheat, author of the brand new memoir, Son of a Milkman. We'll be right back. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. Chris Epting will be releasing the third edition of his best-selling baseball travel Bible, Roadside Baseball, in June 2019. Academy Award-nominated director Ken Burns said about Roadside Baseball, What a wonderful book. All the stations of the cross of our national pastime are here, big and small, telling and frivolous. I can imagine this book in the glove compartment of every true fan's car. A handy reference to this beloved game, no matter where in the country you are. The new edition features hundreds of new places to discover, more rare photos, stories, and trivia. It's everything you need to plan the baseball road trip of your dreams. Roadside Baseball, coming this June. Available for pre-order right now on Amazon.com. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective, plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite hosts. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access all the time become our friend on facebook post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline visit facebook.com forward slash voice america 
You are listening to The Moment with Chris Epting. If you have a question or comment about our show, please send an email to Chris at chrisepting.com. That's chris at chrisepting.com. Now, back to The Moment. Talking today with uh, my friend, co-author, and founder of the band Tesla, Brian Wheat, talking about his book, Son of a Milkman, My Crazy Life with Tesla. You know, Brian, we've been talking about Paul McCartney, Jimmy Page, uh, Five Man Acoustic Jam. One of the big stories in the book, um, well, Joe Elliott from Def Leppard wrote the foreword to your book. You guys are good friends. But beyond that, the band Def Leppard factors so big into the career arc of Tesla as well. Talk about what, the, what, what Def Leppard leopard means to you guys because they've been there with you kind of like big brothers right since the beginning and that's never really changed has it no no it hasn't changed it's always it's the same you know there's a kinship between us how does that start uh, well it started by just you know when we first started uh, our managers cliff bernstein and peter minch were their managers right so we were the same management stable and then we wound up doing the whole hysteria, you know, tour with them. And, you know, from that, we just became, you know, they were special because that was our, you know, that was big. That was, you know, what cracked us. Yeah, you had toured and, with David. You had toured with David Lee Roth. You had done some pretty decent tours, but nothing on the scale of hysteria. Hysteria really was. That was one of the biggest tours in history at that time. Yeah, yeah. It used an all-new stage. It was in the round. What was that like for you guys as a band to be going out on that scale on this, you know, crazy high-tech stage they had designed? It was a real lot of production involved. How was that for Tesla just to sort of step up and, you know, do what you had to do on that tour? Well, I mean, back then they just kind of threw us into things and we had to rise to the occasion, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And that's what we did. You know, it's like, okay, we're going to play in the round. We ain't never done it before. It feels really weird, but uh, 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 you know, we just uh, made the best of it and we got pretty natural at it, actually. You got you know, to know Steve Clark, Steve Clark um, the late, great Steve Clark. You guys got to know each other pretty well, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, Steve was, he was just like Joe and all those other guys, you know, we hung out with Steve a lot, you know, when Steve was around, uh, you know, those guys, you know, when we were on tour with him, you know, Joe had this thing. He's like, just come in the dress room anytime you want. Don't knock, don't have ask. You know what I mean? They were very welcoming to us and I'm sure we drove them nuts you know, <laughs> when we were young. I still drive Joe nuts. Well, you have a moment, you know, Joe, when Joe was writing the forward to the book, um, I know you talked to him about it. I talked to him a couple times about it. And there's this moment that you both talk about where the tour is about to start in America, I think up in Glens Falls, New York, and you're yeah. getting final rehearsals together. And then Joe, kind of, you don't know him well at this point, but he wanders over to your hotel room at a certain point of the night, right? Yeah, we were staying in the same hotel. And, uh, as we did a lot because, you know, management, same thing, right? Sure. Um, me and Frank used to share rooms back then. Uh, it was before we were able to get our, our own rooms. And, um, you know, there was this knock on the door. And it was, you know, it was late. It was maybe 
11 30 12 at night we thought oh shit we're making too much noise you know we're in there listening to music frank's playing guitar or whatever and it, it was joe and i was oh hey man sorry did we did, did were we keeping you up and he's like no no uh can i come in like, yeah come on in man and uh he hung out with me and frank for you know the rest of the night and we sat around you know playing guitar and singing you know, wing songs. That's where me and Joe really bonded was on Paul McCartney and wings. And, you know, he was playing, you know, mop the hoop or whatever. And we just became that night is when me and him kind of became buddies. Like, I think we decided, okay, we like each other. And then from that, you know, me and him just developed this friendship from being on tour every day. And, you know, we'd go to a movie or dinner whatever you know what i mean and it's it's been like that ever since you know if i ever want like you know good solid advice or i need you know to be counseled on something i'll call joe and go look i got this problem what do you think how should i deal with it even like if i had problems within the band you know because he's in a band that you know it's a similar every band has bullshit they have to deal with no matter what band it is and he's always given me really solid advice you know for 35 years well brian if i may let me read a quick clip here from the forward that joe wrote about you to the point you're talking about he says um brian and i have had so many conversations over the years where he would say to me i know i know i know but then I would step in and say, there's no buts here. Whether it involves his health issues or band matters, I'm always going to be forthright and honest with Brian because of how much I care about him. Brian has shared many dramatic incidents that have happened in his life with me because he knows they'll be discussed with a lot of humor, love, and respect. He knows that no matter how brutally honest I might be, it's coming from a good place because, again, I truly care about him. I mean, you guys really do have a brotherhood. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny, you know. Yeah, we're, we're you know. I tell everybody he's my best friend in a in a in a, in a rock band. Yeah. And, and in addition to Joe, over the years, you and Phil Collin, our, our great mutual friend, um, yeah. you know, Phil winds up producing, you know, a great Tesla album, um, gets mm-hmm. totally vested in your band. You have a, a great and unique relationship with Phil as well, don't you? Yeah, I do. It's just not uh, not as, you know, sometimes I won't hear from Phil or, you know, because we both get busy or whatever. Uh, so with Joe, it's always been a bit more consistent, only in the sense that Joe was the, the guy I, I gravitated to. Right. But, you know, a couple years ago, me and Phil were real close because we were working in close contact. It's unsaid. I mean, me and Phil are great. And he is a, he is a great friend of mine. He's a brother as well, you know. But, you know, he's a busy guy, man. Yeah. He's one of the busiest. He's, all, as you know, he's always doing something. He is, but he's going to slow down this weekend because I'm bringing him a copy of our book. I want to put a copy in his yeah. hands because I know he'll yeah. love it. You know, his um, birthday's but, coming up. Pardon? His birthday's coming up. I know. I know. Um, yeah. But it's interesting because, again, the, you and De- Tesla and Def Leppard, I don't think enough people understand the dynamic between how they brought you out. They were kind of a big brother band. You guys have since toured together. 
um, these these great friendships came as a result. There's not a lot of that in music today where you've got two bands that have sort of grown up together like that. And back in the day, I mean, when, when Def Leppard took you out, they were already a very heavy MTV established band. But then it happened to you guys as well. What do you remember, Brian, about the effect MTV had on Tesla? Well, at the time, I mean, that was the biggest mover of rock music. I mean, if you were in heavy rotation on MTV, you were selling hundreds of thousands of records, you know, and that was the, the power of it at the time. So it was, it was the big, it was the biggest thing. I mean, you, you sure you had radio and radio has always been the king, but at that, you know, that three or four years, yeah, you know, 84, 85, 85, Say 85 to 90, you know, if you were on MTV and you were a rock band and you were getting really good rotation, you were selling a lot of records. People knew who, who you were. You know, it was, it, was, it was the thing. It's not the same anymore at all. What was it like for you guys, though, when it happens and you go from being, you know, bands became TV stars at that point. All of a sudden, you became instantly recognizable um, in a way that if people hadn't seen you live, that didn't happen. I mean, MTV ushered in this era where all of a sudden, high, you know, high rotation, high volume bands became television stars like you guys. Yeah, people actually knew what you looked like. I mean, when I was a kid in the 70s, they didn't have videos. So you didn't, you know, you heard the bands on the radio. You wouldn't know if you saw them in the store. You know what I mean? Unless it was the Beatles or Led Zeppelin or something. Because you just had the magazines back then. Right. We all so, read Circus you know, and Hit Parader and Cream and all those. Yeah, and, and Cream. And, you know, that's where I, I found out about all my rock bands was in Cream and Circus. You know? Of course. Uh, uh but, you know, the saturation was so huge with MTV. It took it to a, it took it to that complete different level, which is why you really need to appreciate something like Aerosmith and Toys in the Attic with Walk This Way, because they, the only thing they had then was the Midnight Special or Don Kirshner's Rock Concert. Right. Which was a weekly show, and they might be on there one week, and you know, nineteen weeks later again. Well, that's the thing. No, you're right. And if we as kids knew that they were going to be on, you waited weeks for that night, and you stayed up late, and the midnight special or in concert or Don Kirshner or whatever, they didn't come on to like eleven thirty or midnight. So you'd sit up late. an event oh it was a total event and you would watch with friends potentially and that you're right that was the visual representation of the band unless you were fortunate enough to see them come through your town when they played but but it wasn't an everyday thing and it wasn't like they were in your living rooms every night again tesla really came of age during the prime of mtv along with bands like def leppard and and you know plenty of others but uh it's you know but you guys it it hit hard and look Def Leppard, Motley Crue, you know, Poison, uh, you know, Van Halen was before MTV, you know, right. uh, certainly the first couple of records, you know, obviously, you know, by the time they got to uh, 1984, it was all over MTV with Jump and Panic. Yeah, they, they adapted well. I mean, they were obviously a very yeah. visual band and but, it was but, easier for but, them. 
So when you look at bands like Van Halen that were selling all these records or Aerosmith or Led Zeppelin at the time, all they had was radio and the rags, which were the magazines, and concerts. So that whole thing, you know, when you look at Slippery When Wet and um, um, Hysteria Pyromania, that, you know, the success of those records, those guys were all over MTV. But then you take Back in Black, Right. Right. Which sold just as many, if not, I don't know, maybe even more. They didn't have MTV. So you really got to tip your hat to someone like ACDC selling 10 million records. Absolutely. At a point when there wasn't, um, there wasn't MTV. All, all, all they had was the radio and, 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 and the magazines. So that's, it's pretty cool when you, when you kind of pick it apart and look at it. From you know what the marketing vehicle was then, you know, you really got to tip your hat to those bands in the seventies that sold that that kind totally. of volume of records. Well, Brian, you know your book, Son of a Milkman, um, My Crazy Life with Tesla. We we've barely scratched the surface. There's a lot of stuff in here, a lot of ups and downs, a lot of sex and drugs, a lot of dealing, as we talked about earlier, with your personal issues, be it you know, certain weight fluctuations, depression, anxiety, a lot of really personal things that I think people are going to be able to relate to, as well as great rock and roll storytelling. I mean, you guys have had Tesla, that is an incredible career. It continues today. You guys will will always be out there, you know, doing great tours and festivals and things like that. We cover a lot of that stuff in the book, but I really think the heart of this book comes down to your honesty and your ability to share with people, not just what it's like to be a rock star, but what it's like to be a human being who's dealing with some things that are that are pretty tough, but being experienced by a lot of people today. I think you're going to help a lot of people with your book. I really do. Whether it's well, you know, you, well you talk about depression very, you know, uh, very uh, honestly about a day. I don't want to tell the whole story, but a day that you spent with Chris Cornell and how that kind of opened your eyes and made you aware of some things that you were feeling at that time. And within a couple of months, he was gone and Bourdain was gone and, and, and Chester was gone. And you watched these things happening to you around your life and made you these, these wake up calls that you experienced were, were really important. And we go into all of those things in the book. And I just want to tell you, my friend, it was really, uh, you know, a, a pleasure to work with you on this to, to your trust and understanding. This was uh, really, really something to work on. I'm super proud of you. We're going to be out there talking about this book for the next couple of months, but I uh, want to thank you for taking a full hour of your time today during your upstate New York snowstorm and talk about your book, son of a milkman, Brian. Oh, hey man. Thank you for putting up with me in the last six months. <laughs> <laughs> it's been longer than six months, but I would do it all over call. again, man. Brian, you're an when awesome we, guy. Phone call. I'm going to call and bust your balls in a minute. <laughs> Listen, everybody, the book is available now on Amazon. Son of a Milkman, My Crazy Life with Tesla. Brian Week. thank you so much, brother. We will see each other soon up in Sacramento. You got it, pal. All right, man. Thank you for taking a moment out of your busy week to join us for The Moment. Be sure to join Chris Epting for another edition every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you here next week.